0: This is George Securus, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Hi, honey. Hey. Hi. How'd you know I was home? Oh, a
1: little birdie's
0: home.
1: Oh? What's <laughs>
0: in the package? Oh, it's a little something to help us save money. Featuring Del oh. <sighs> Save money?
1: Honey, do you mind if I sit for a while before we have dinner?
0: No, no. Why don't we go in the other room where there's
1: more lamps? The light The Robertson author guest Jennifer Armstrong. Jennifer Armstrong, TV historian, former writer for Entertainment Weekly, and the author of several books, the latest of which is When Women Invented Television, a history of the first ten years of network television, as seen through the lives and the accomplishments of Gertrude Berg, Hazel Scott, Betty White, and Soap Opera Maven and Phillips, and how all four women found themselves marginalized as television became more popular and more lucrative amidst the changing culture of the early 1950s. When women invented television is available in bookstores everywhere through HarperCollins. You can also find it at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. You can follow Jennifer Armstrong on Facebook, Twitter, instagram and jenniferkarmstrong.com before we went to break we were about to discuss how the blacklist spelled the beginning of the end for both the hazel scott show and the goldbergs starring gertrude berg
0: so what happens is there's this publication called red channels this is how these things work i barely knew how these things work till i researched this book but this publication comes out with this list of i believe it's 151 hollywood names that they're like these people we think they might be communists. Do with this information what you will. And when someone appeared in these publications, it would really scare, you know, advertisers and networks and people in power with the money. And so that is how blacklist would work. You Often it was very nefarious. You weren't sure, you know, it was very cloudy how these things all went down. But basically Hazel was on the list and so was Gertrude Berg's television husband, the man who played her husband on the Goldbergs, Philip Loeb. Mm-hmm. And so this ends up really curtailing both Hazel Scott and Gertrude Berg's legacies because they both go out it different ways. Hazel decides she's going to clear her own name, and she actually asks to go before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which people didn't usually do. Mm-hmm. And her husband, who is a congressman, is like, maybe don't do that. Yeah. But she was planning to do it. She went, she spoke her mind to this room full of white men, and including one who had ties to the Ku Klux Klan. And I think it's incredibly brave. But unfortunately, the movie doesn't end the way you want it to. Yeah. Um, it is a very brave act. But instead of being celebrated, she goes back home and ends up losing her show over this. And suddenly they can't find a sponsor, you know, it's no one's fault, it's all very mysterious, but clearly this is a result of the blacklist, because as you said, her show was doing very well, it was getting great reviews, everyone was saying, we need more Hazel Scott on television. So that was really the end of her show, by the end of 1950, it was off the air. And Gertrude actually um, faced pressure from her sponsor, General Foods, to fire Philip Loeb, her TV husband who was accused, And she wouldn't. And so it's a complicated story, but essentially the upshot is she spends so much time behind the scenes trying to fight for him, trying to come up with some way to get General Foods to be okay with this. The show gets knocked off the air on CBS at its height. I mean, it had just become a movie because it was so successful. It had gone back onto the radio. It was so successful. This was it. And it was actually supposed to come back the next fall paired with this new show called I Love Lucy. And it was going to be, you know, a powerhouse comedy night. And instead, Lucy Goes on the Air is an instant success. And the rest of that is history. While the Goldberg is fighting behind the scenes. And while Gertrude is able to get her show back on the air on a different network, NBC, a few seasons later, it's lost all of its momentum. You know, it's not the same now. It doesn't have The, the fan base hasn't been able to stay with it. She is eventually, she's forced to... Replace Philip Loeb. She cannot come to a compromise with her sponsor and decides to keep it going because she still does employ, you know, dozens of people on the show and wants to be good to them. It is also her life's work. She had had she had had this show on the air for seventeen years on radio, so she decides, you know, she's going to pay Philip Loeb as if he's still on the show, but he can't be on the show, and that is the compromise. That's all she can do, and unfortunately, the show is just never the same, and I think the show's, you know, sort of momentum is broken, and so I believe that that's a huge reason why Lucy is Lucy. You know, Lucy is so famous, and we don't know Gertrude's name, a lot of us.
1: You mentioned that uh, you talked to Hazel Scott's son as part of your preparation of when women invented television, should also uh, let uh, folks know that Jennifer poured through a lot of archival interview uh, sure. a, a material, including correspondence, personal papers, and in- interviews of all the people involved, not just yep. of not just of the principal four subjects, but supporting characters such as uh, such as Philip Loeb. And um, sure. I I knew the backstory of Philip Loeb. I knew the outcome of the Philip Loeb story, and yet, Jennifer, mm-hmm. I felt sad when I read about it in the final chapter yeah. of the book.
0: Yeah, um, Philip Loeb is a really tragic story. He is kind of the one really known suicide by blacklist. Mm-hmm. Um, he really struggled after that, even though he was still being paid by Gertrude uh, while the show was still on. He had mounting bills, and he had tax debt, and he had a mentally disabled son who he was trying to support in an institution and those are big bills and it just piled up on him he could not get any other work because of his blacklisting and so he and he was struggling with his own anxiety and depression and so he died by suicide he took too many pills in a New York City hotel in midtown in 1955 and was really recognized as a result of the blacklist and is very, very sad. And yes, I did get quite a bit of perspective actually on the entire you know, arc of the situation from both Philip Loeb's archive in the New York Public Library and he was best friends with the great actor, the great comics and musical actor, Zero Bestel, mm-hmm. who had an archive and he, you know, Philip was writing a lot of letters. They were best friends yeah. with writing a lot of letters to Zero during this time. And Gertrude did not talk a lot about the Philip Loeb situation. I think I believe my read on this is she was so devastated yeah. by everything that and she was a careful self-editor. She had a certain way that she wanted to present herself and her life, and this was not you know this was not part of the plan, yeah. and her grandchildren said this is just something we didn't talk about in the family, so I had to get some of that perspective from.
1: Philip Loeb's own words. Yeah, she she uh, she uh, Gertrude did everything she could to rectify that situation and still keep her show on the air. So it's a very delicate balancing act. And while Philip Loeb understood her decision to move forward without him, because he was a trooper in a lot of respects,
0: mm-hmm. still
1: absolutely still n- nobody could have anticipated Nobody could have anticipated suicide, and it's just, it was, as you say, it was just devastating for her.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just was such, it's such a hard thing because some people who, like, look back on the blacklist are sort of mad at her, you know, for giving in. And it was my, I really, really set out to kind of figure out what went on, and it was hard to do because of, like I said, because she didn't talk about it afterward. Her own autobiography just omits the entire situation. And that, to me, is so telling. So it was it was hard, but between her archives and and what I just mentioned, and kind of other published accounts and archives, I was able to piece together enough to feel like she tried. She really she yeah. she was really trying to negotiate behind the scenes and had an impossible choice because that show never. I believe that show never was going to be back on the air.
1: Yeah, with it,
0: Philip Logue.
1: it was it was a scar. It was it was for her. It was a scar that never ever quite. Healed, and I was—I was going to say of of the four, Hazel Scott came out the most scarred as a result of the blacklist and the ensuing changes in the culture between September 1950 and the middle of 1955. But I think we can—I think we just made the case that Gertrude was deeply affected as well.
0: Oh, completely. I mean, there's no doubt, and I mean, I think it's—it's clear we have you know a black woman and a Jewish woman who were right in the crosshairs of McCarthyism. Yeah. And so it's no real surprise, unfortunately, that they would suffer so much from this. I, I think they both had wonderful careers and, you know, great legacies. But I think that if it weren't for that, we would more people would know their names.
1: Yeah, Hazel Scott did continue to tour, and she did continue to record. And, you know, her music is being discovered again by a new audience. Today, But it's, uh, again, it's an important story which you capture in When Women Invented Television, which is available through our friends at HarperCollins. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Two more questions for now. Um, mm-hmm. we, we kind of touched on some of the changes that happened in 1955, but 1955 mm-hmm. was a bad year for all four women involved in, in terms of their television careers. Yes, exactly. I sort of
0: say that this is where I date the actual 50s. As starting in terms of what we think of mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. As 50, 1950s peak, you know, television. What I think of as the father knows best era. Mm-hmm. When you think back, when we evoke that now, when people talk about the good old days, this is really and and not of all not all of us would agree that they were the good old days. Right. But right, this is what they're evoking: is that white, obviously heteronormative you know, two parent nuclear family with 2.5 kids in the suburbs as the gold standard that is presented by America to the world, mostly via their television shows. Right. And this is also when not coincidentally, this is when there's really an influx into the industry of the white men who had previously been kind of running radio because that's where the money still was. And by the mid 50s, you know, it takes a while for technology to catch on, and it wasn't until about the mid-50s that it got to be where, quote, everyone, you know, a, a mass of people had television in America, and this is when it really becomes, you know, a man's, a white man's medium. And so, you know, while Hazel Scott and Gertrude Gard were fighting this really, like, fights of their lives for their careers, and Erna Phillips and... Betty White, were not like it was not the same for them, of course, but they still had their own struggles yeah. at this time. And Erna Phillips was constantly being second-guessed by the male executives that she was working with, even though she had had just outrageous amounts of success with mm-hmm. her soap operas in uh, radio. At one point in the 40s, she was making $250,000 a year in 1940s terms, <laughs> um, which is insane, yeah. you know, because she was so successful, and she had something like seven shows on the air at one, one point, and yet when she tried to bring them over to television, she was constantly arguing with executives, and she really knew her audience, but she was always being second-guessed. She actually had to finance two of her own pilots, one of which was for Guiding Life, and the other of which was for As the World Turns both of which just recently ended. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Guiding Light holds the record for longest broadcast drama, period. End of story, because it went from radio to television. So she really knew what she was doing, but was always sort of fighting this, in addition to trying to juggle being this empresario with raising two children that she had adopted on her own as a single mother. And then it had no support in that regard. And Buddy... Meanwhile, was similarly dealing with some with a lot of male executives, kind of, you know, executiveing. Yes, jokes <laughs> that, um, she had she had a classic situation with like that. She had this um, great success. She had a talk show that she got. She got a national talk show on NBC in 1954, and so she was sort of hailed as the next big thing. The one of the stories about her said she was the most successful young woman. In video that's how they put it mm-hmm. in her late 20s mm-hmm. exact you know producing the show the Betty White show and the executives I read a lot of the memos that they were all these men writing memos to each other literally I'm not even making this up I feel like I am but in one of them they were talking about what quote games like <laughs> and they decided it was emotional gambit games um, like emotion we need to get more emotion in this yeah So they moved her around the schedule. They sort of nitpicked her to death and then um, ended up at the end of the year replacing her with Tennessee Ernie Ford, the male pop singer. And that was kind of that. And quite poignantly, it's amazing to think back on this now, but at that time, Betty really wondered if her career was over because she'd had this great run in early television and kind of was thinking like, maybe that's it. Maybe like I was just supposed to be sort of in the early... You know, little leagues, and that's going to be that. But luckily, we now know.
1: And beca- because she, like in any other field, you it's adapt or die, and she yep. knew she knew how to adapt to the changing forms. And you know, uh, first with becoming the queen of the game show contestants, and later hosting mm-hmm. her own game show, and then of course reinventing herself several times as an actress, both Mary Tyler Moore and Golden Girls
0: exactly i think she has such an uncanny knack for reading television i like i said i think there's just something like spiritual between betty white and television they were just meant meant to be in a way that we may never see again
1: what are you working on next jennifer
0: we'll see <laughs> Let's
1: always a process. Well, I hope I hope like all of us I hope you have held up during this unusual time of hunkering down and I one of these days as things open up either I will come out to New York or We'll meet up here in Los Angeles and have some fun. I
0: hope I'll be out there soon, whether to I hope I would love to be out there to promote this book because I haven't obviously gotten to do that with this one and it would be really fun.
1: When women invented television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today by Jennifer Armstrong available. HarperCollins, wherever fine books are sold. You can also find it at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Jennifer's website, JenniferKArmstrong.com. Jennifer, always, always a pleasure to chat with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much, Ed. We'll continue our look at This Week in TV History right after this.
0: Okay, we are running a car drive right now to help veterans all across America. So if you have an old car, truck, or van, even a motorcycle or an RV sitting around, you can right now give it away and help the vets. They really need your help. And your car will help support the vets and their families. And guess what? You even get a tax donation. Plus, we'll even come and pick up your car for free. And all you've got to do is Pick up your phone right now and make a free call. Now is the perfect time to do something good for the vets. Give back to the vets right now for all they've done for this country. And your old car can really help them. So call the Veterans Car Donation Program right now for free pickup of your vehicle. Help
1: the vets and help your taxes at the same time. Call right now. 800-890-1032. 800-890-1032. 800-890-1032. Three two. That's 800 890 1032. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at TVconfidential.net. Talk at TVconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash TV Confidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential, or at